Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. This week on the podcast, it's a long distance chat with nutritional scientist Dr. Joanna McMillan. Joanna is a well known name in Australia. And she is the go-to person to chat with to sort out your diet, discuss calories and what I wanted to know about, the gut-mind connection. We caught up over Zoom a few weeks ago at opposite ends of our day. She had actually just finished doing the school run and I was in my pyjamas waiting to go to bed. It was a lovely talk and I learned so much about what I should and shouldn't be eating and when I should and shouldn't be eating it. Here's Dr Joe on the Scots Care podcast, all the way from Australia. Scots Care, the charity helping to break the cycle of poverty some Scots find in London. Hello. Good morning, Marcus. Nice to see you. Just give me a second. I'm just going to uh, get rid of that blurry background because I always think it's a bit rubbish. I'll just let you see my normal messy sitting room behind me. Oh, Christ, I've got three kids. You, go. Joanna, you know, mine looks like a, a <laughs> landfill site most of the time. <laughs> well, mine are now teenagers, so they should be a bit better. But I mean, the only saving grace is they're so rarely here because they're teenagers. Well, so they're not here to make a mess. I know. My my, I've, my oldest is 14. Noah's 14. When I do see him, I just seem to be shouting at him. You know, you think, <laughs> I, what have you, what have you yeah. done since you got in? I had a right go at them today because... He got in at three o'clock and then I came in at six o'clock with my other two kids they'd had after school stuff. And, you know, he's, yeah. in, his dr- he's in his dressing gown. And I said, what have you done? I've not done anything. Have you emptied the dishwasher? No, I've not emptied the dishwasher. You know? And my wife's always saying, you just got to get off his back. And, you know, I just, I need to be nicer. But anywho, look, thank you for doing this. It's, oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's a joy to speak to someone back home at the, in the homeland. Where are you, Marcus? Well, we're just outside London. I kind of I moved down to London from I'm Glaswegian, moved down to London in '98, and so I've been here. Wow, that's scary. Twenty five years, and and I, I bet you get this. Like when I go home now, everybody thinks I sound English. <laughs> I get that all the time. So I, I've been in Australia almost as long. So I think it's twenty four years for me now in Australia. So you know, I'm coming up to almost half my life here in Australia. But of course, in Australia, they all think I still sound really Scottish, and then. When I come home or when I talk to my mum on the phone, she thinks I sound Australian. So I don't know. I'm obviously being impacted in some way. Do you do you think of Australia now? Like I was talking to my friend Debbie, and she's from Aberdeen, and she lives down the road from me, and she's been he- down here about as long as I have, and she kind of says she kinds of feel sometimes caught in this hinterland that she's no longer 100% Scottish, but she's not. You know, she doesn't feel 100% home in England either. So the, she's kind of stuck between two countries. Do you ever get that with half your life spent in Australia? Yes, I, I, I do understand that sentiment because I'm still, you know, even though I've almost spent half my life here in Sydney, 
I'm still sort of a foreigner in a way because I sound funny. But on the other hand, I mean, lots of people do in Australia. There's loads of of British people and lots of my friends are Irish or New Zealanders even, or or even if they're Australian, they're often from interstate. So there's lots of people in Sydney who are from elsewhere. And so we kind of have orphans, Christmases, et cetera. You know, if you're not going home to your family, there's always a gathering of people who don't have family here. So that's always really nice. And I admit, I do talk about going home when I go to Scotland. And then when I leave Scotland to come back to Sydney, I talk about going home. So I've kind of got home and home. But I understand that when, I, when I'm back in Scotland now, I feel like, you know, I dress differently. My, you know, my, my voice is a little different. I might use words that, that we don't necessarily use anymore in Scotland. So, so I understand that sentiment. I'm not quite, you know... I'm not quite another Scot when I go home, but of course I very quickly sort of integrate back into it and, and similarly out here. So, you know, I just try to think of it as two homes, which is quite nice. How often do you get back? Because it's such an expense to mobilise the family and, and come half a world oh. away. Oh, I know. And, you know, that was one of the hardest things for me during COVID was, you know, I've always said my parents are still in Scotland. My two brothers both live back in the UK with their families. And um, so I've always... Um, you know, I've always said to mom, I can be home in a day or it's really 30 hours or whatever. But, you know, basically I can be home in a day. And so that was really difficult during COVID that I said, no one's having heart attacks. No one's getting sick <laughs> while I can't jump in a plane and get home. And I really felt that was that was sort of a very claustrophobic feeling for me. I didn't like it that I couldn't jump in a plane. Um, but, yeah, normally I tried to get when my kids were small, it was easier. I came home for a month every year when they were when they were small. And then, of course, they go to school and. It becomes more difficult. You're restricted by school holidays. And now, of course, they're they're charged as adults. I've got two boys who are 16 and 18. So, you know, if we all come back, it's four adult fairs. It's, wow. it's in post-COVID world. It's even more expensive. So I am hoping that I can get us back for, for this Christmas. And I'm kind of now, you know, my parents are in their late 70s. Now that my kids are almost kind of, one's grown up and one's only got a couple of years of, of school. I'm hoping I can actually get back more often, build some work in the UK, but also just spend, split my time a bit more between Scotland and, and Sydney. And that will be my ideal. Because it's interesting. You must talk like you and I are talking here. You've just done the school run and I am I am sitting here in my pyjamas. So... <laughs> Yeah, I presume when you talk to your mum back home, there is this, you know, she'll be going to her bed or you'll be going to your bed. So it does make that quite awkward, doesn't it? Well, it does. You can't always get onto the same sort of, um, uh, you know, mindset because there's either, you know, invariably, especially if it's the weekend, one of us has got a glass of wine in hand as, and is in a merry weekend evening mood and the other is sitting in their pyjamas with a cup of coffee. And so yeah. sometimes that can be quite amusing, yeah. especially but when I talk to Scottish, it's, it's your mum that's having a glass of wine at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, as we all do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did my 18-year-old son just went back to Scotland and, and England for the first time. I've got a brother who is also just outside London with his wife and three kids and and I had a lovely chat with, you know, my 18-year-old on the couch with his two uncles, all with a glass of wine in hand, and and me sitting here with my cup of coffee. And, and it was great just seeing the three of them giggling and laughing away. Um, and I very great. much enjoyed that. So, yeah, it can be quite amusing. Did he enjoy it coming back here? He loved it. He even went to a Burns supper with uh, that his his aunt um, was emceeing and did a brilliant job. It was actually in London, not in Scotland, but we got him into his kilt and... Charlie and uh, I, I was sent brilliant pictures of him Scottish country dancing and I loved it. So yeah, it was uh, he had a really good time. For anyone who doesn't know you in the UK, how would you describe your area of expertise? For anyone who has not seen you on the TV or read your books, yeah, I'm um, 
I'm I'm not known really at all in Scotland, but here in Australia, I'm known quite well for for my nutrition work. So I'm a nutrition scientist. I came to Sydney originally, really really to to do my PhD, and I've I've stayed. Um, so I did my PhD at Sydney University, and um, and I've and I find myself just sort of stumbled into media. Um, so I've sort of still got my foot in the research camp. I do some teaching and research in, in the area of human nutrition. I'm also a dietitian. So I've I've kind of over the years done various things, including some TV, but lots of media stuff. I've written a whole bunch of books. Um, I've, during COVID, I've been writing for Audible, actually. So if you're in the UK, you can find my books on Audible. I've just been in the recording studio the last two days doing the latest one. Um, so there's a series of Audible books that I've covered, Brain Health, the latest one is Heart Health. I've done Gut Health, and then I did one called Food Fight, Making Sense of the Diet Wars. So that's been really fun. And, and actually, that was funny because Audible Audible Australia commissioned me, but it goes out in the US and in the UK and here on all the Audible channels. And they said to me, actually, we really like your Scottish accent. You know, that's it's quite universal. So there you go, Scott, fellow Scots that are listening. Our accent apparently is is a good one for taking around the world, provided they say it's not too strong and everyone can understand you. Yeah, that's interesting. To, yeah, can you slow down? Can you slow down? Can you slow down even further? Yes. Please? Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I like what you said about diet wars, because that, that made me think about, I don't know if you have this in Australia, but at the moment, if you go to a pub and you're going to eat something, the menu has to have legally has to have the calorie count on it. And everything you buy has to have these kind of traffic lights with kind of like red is like it's going to yeah. kill you with before you finish your dinner, you know, through to, you know, salt and sugars and fat. And do you think calories, is that a good way to live your life? Or Because I always, I hear about bad calories and good calories and we should all have around 2000 calories. Is that realistic? Yeah, look, there's been a lot of discussion and it's kind of, it's still a hot topic in nutrition research, um, never mind in kind of popular media, with some people saying, you know, the, the old calories in, calories out idea is a bit old hat. Um, and it doesn't take into account food quality. So, you know, I'm on the board of an olive oil company out here and I've long been an advocate for having good fats in your diet. But if you start looking at the calories and something like extra virgin olive oil, you know, you wouldn't be drinking, you wouldn't be using it. Um, you'd, you'd panic. And of course, that's exactly what happened during the kind of low fat era that probably you and I grew up with, uh, Marcus, when we were, you know, um, certainly when I was a teenager and in my 20s and early 20s in Scotland, that, that was very much the, the goal. And we've learned our lesson from that and realised that we threw out all these really good fats and the things that we really need um, for good health. So that's what I object to about calories. It doesn't take into account the quality. The other thing is we all digest food differently. We all have different digestive systems. And we've learned um, nuts is a really great example. Some recent research has shown that actually the calorie count on the packet for nuts, because it's all calculated in a lab. It's not calculated as to what actually happens in the human body. And we've realized that we're, we're overestimating the calories in whole nuts by up to as, as much as 30%. Wow. So all these people who were thinking, oh my goodness, I've got to make sure I don't eat too many nuts, actually has worked against us. These are really healthy, good foods for us to include. And if you have your you know, calorie dense nuts and things like extra virgin olive oil and avocado, then you, you don't eat so much of all the, the rubbish food. So I think calories can be, I always say to people, look, just have calorie awareness. So if you are going for that pub meal and you see that the burger with fries and the, and the you know, I don't know, ranch dressing, I've just been in the States, that ranch dressing came to my mind. Um, and, you know, and you look at it and you say, oh my goodness, that's 4,000 calories all up. That's more than double the average. Then it can give you a bit of awareness as to, all right, maybe this is a really energy dense meal that I shouldn't be eating quite so much of. Children and families are Scots Care's top priorities. They're where most of our help goes. 
Scots Care offers financial grants, counselling, respite holidays, and days out to the likes of London Zoo and Winter Wonderland. We see helping families with tailored support as key to improving the lives of Scots in London. I, I was in the supermarket yesterday and I was trying to choose something for my dinner because everybody else in the house had gone out and I thought, oh, I'll just go and get pizza. And and they had done this sneaky thing where it says a quarter of this pizza equals X amount of calories, you know. <laughs> but when I when yeah. I had, when I times that by four, it was over a thousand calories in this pizza. And then what's interesting is you talking about how we digest things differently. And I I digest things differently now than I than I used to. And I and I don't mean like obvious things as I've got older. I used to be able to eat a, a curry and a couple of pints of lager and I'd be okay about it. And now I can't even think about that. I can, you know, in fact, I would either have rice or bread with it. I can't have both with it, but even simpler yeah. things like, like uh, sometimes I have an omelette and it makes me feel really nauseous for some reason. I don't get it. I don't understand why eggs make me feel sick now. Or the one that I really miss is a baked potato because I used to love baked potatoes. Now if I have a baked potato, it it just it makes me feel awful. Do you think our bodies change as we get older? Well, they certainly can do, but also what can change is your gut microbiome. So this is the collection of microbes that live within your gut and they're concentrated especially right down at the end in your colon. And what might well have happened to you is that over time you've changed because you might have followed particular I'm just I'm just um I don't I obviously don't know what you've done over your lifetime, Marcus, but let's say you did follow the low carb fad for a while. And so you weren't eating potatoes and you weren't having bread and you weren't having rice, then your gut microbiome actually adapts to that. And one of the problems with a low carb diet is that it also ends up usually being low fiber and fiber is what you know fuels lots of these really healthy bugs in your gut. So your gut microbiome actually adapts to whatever you're, you're eating and it adapts really quickly. Like within 24 hours, you can start seeing changes in your gut microbiome. And if that continues over many years and over decades, you know, your, your gut microbiome can change quite considerably. And if you suddenly throw a baked potato with the, you know, all the fibers in that skin, it's actually a really healthy food, a baked potato, provided it's not massive. You know, the smaller potatoes tend to be much healthier. You know, your, your gut microbiome is not adapted anymore to that kind of food. So it can take some time to, you know, to recalibrate and, and to be able to take that food again. So that can happen. But then also certainly, you know, changes happen just in the way that our, you know, we start getting wrinkles and things start breaking down a little bit as we get older. You know, the same can happen with your digestive system and you can just end up not being as good at metabolizing stuff or you're just a lot more sedentary. Um, you know, you get a few more aches and pains. It takes longer to recover from exercise. Perhaps your career has kind of taken off a lot more. You're in a more senior position and that might involve more sitting down and being in meetings. And oh, for lots of reasons, we end up being a lot more sedentary. And that means our energy expenditure is not the same. So lots of people who think, oh, I'm getting middle age spread and I'm putting on weight, but I eat the same. Well, often that's just because you're you're more sedentary and you're, you know, you're 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 still eating the same amount of food. Um, and then it just sort of creeps up on you. You're losing muscle and gaining fat as time goes on. So, you know, there's lots, there's lots of rubbish stuff that happens to us as we get older. But yes, we can yes. only just try to mitigate some of that by staying as active as we can and eating as well as we can. Yes, I think this is well. That's interesting. It's that staying. I want to ask you about that staying as active as we can. And it's, it's you know, when you're talking about just sitting more. A friend of mine is a novelist, and and she's she's actually quite a successful novelist. But she she obviously sits for long periods of time writing every every day 
And yeah. she was saying to me, oh, she said, I've got to shift some of this weight I've put on. And she went on this diet, Joanna, and it was 800 calories a day. Right. Oh. So that's so. And I didn't see her for like three or four weeks. And then I saw her and I went, wow. But and she must have lost a stone and a half or something like that. And I just wonder, is a is that a healthy way to lose weight? And surely it's not sustainable. Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. That's, I mean, I hope your friend does manage to keep it off, but that's the trouble with, and especially if you lose weight really quickly like that on, a, on what's a, a very low calorie diet, you know, I could put you on any diet and you'll lose weight as long as you stick to that diet. But the trouble is what happens long-term and long-term, you know, your body fights against weight loss. It doesn't recognize from an evolutionary perspective, being overweight never used to be an issue for our ancestors. You know, if we go back far enough, so, you know, our body is much better at detecting, you know, fat cells that have been emptied of some fat, start shouting out, sending signals, wanting, you know, stimulating your appetite, trying to get you to eat, trying to suppress your energy expenditure in order to refuel. So our systems in play for sort of refueling and refilling up fat cells is much more uh, sensitive and much stronger than the signals that are sensing, oh yeah, we're, we're, we've got plenty of energy coming in, we've got plenty of energy on board, and we, you know, we actually might need to, to lose some of that excess fat. Those, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we've never had such a problem as with overweight and obesity as, as we have done in the, the last hundred years, which is just a blip in the sort of evolutionary scale. So this is the trouble when you diet and you lose weight, your body is railing against that and, and trying to do everything that it can to, to bring that energy back in and, and make you regain the weight. So that's the biggest challenge with, with weight loss. And we know that we're notoriously bad at it. Some people manage to do it. There's a really good register that's held in the state. So people who have lost a considerable amount of weight, I think it's 10% of their body weight and kept it off for at least a year. And they try to study these people to say, what is it they're doing? What helps? And exercise is one thing. They're all big exercisers. Um, but yeah, you've got to, and the longer you can keep it off, the easier it becomes. Your body eventually kind of recalibrates in a way. But that can take, you know, a, a year or two. And the more weight you've lost, the longer it takes to kind of get to that to that um, uh, place. So unfortunately, you know, more than 90% of people who lose a significant amount of weight end up putting it back on, usually with extra, oh, really? um, which is which is the real challenge in, in, the, in the weight loss game. So do you think, it's interesting you say about the, the exercise being such a big part of it because so, you know i'll go to the gym and i'll do a spin class and i'll, I'll have kill myself and you know I, I feel from a endorphin point of view i feel from a mental health point of view it's brilliant i need that kind of stimulation but then i'll look down at the the little panel on my bike and i'll have lost 200 calories which isn't even a mars bar <laughs> and and i do find that quite depressing so i wonder what's the balance as an exercise or is it just stop stuffing my face with the pies well, yeah, the, you're absolutely right. The exercise, don't even look at the calorie burn during exercise because it will just depress you. I mean, the, the, the truth is that, you know, it takes you hours and hours and hours to burn off the calories that, you know, you can you can consume in just a few minutes. So that's why, you know, exercise is not a good way to lose weight. But that's not why we should be exercising. And, 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 and if we just cover weight control, first of all, exercise does have a long, but it's the long play. It helps you to modulate your appetite. It's got a role in long-term you know, weight management. But over the next you know, three weeks or 12 weeks or whatever, it's not gonna be the game changer for you losing weight. Your diet is. 
But the, the reasons, and I always say to people, don't exercise because you think it's going to have an impact on your weight. Exercise for, you mentioned already, you, you feel good, you get the endorphins. Exercise is brilliant for your brain health. It's brilliant for your brain performance as well, by the way. So it's, it really charges up your brain. It gets nutrients and blood and oxygen flowing around your body. So it's just a non-negotiable. And for us getting older, you know, it is, it is one of the most important things that we do we can do to age well is to stay active because it's loss of muscle mass over the years that really causes frailty by the time you get into your twilight years, but also causes a whole load of metabolic problems, including your muscles not being very good at taking glucose up out of the blood. So you get a risk of type two diabetes, the older you get, uh, you know, your arteries um, become and your blood vessels become stiffer because, you know, that pushes up your blood pressure and you're at risk of a heart attack and all of these things. So, I mean, to me, exercise is just a non-negotiable for, for good health, but don't do it. And that's why I think so many people give up exercise because they think, well, I thought I'd lose all this weight and I yeah. didn't. So don't sign up to the gym or, or, or even do any kind of exercise thinking it's going to have a massive impact on your weight. It's not about that. Think of it in terms of health. I mean, you said just a couple of minutes ago about we are just a paraphrase on what you said, but we're basically getting fatter. We're, we've never been, you know, we, we, we have a problem with obesity. Why is that, though? Is it is it too easy to eat rubbish food? Are we not are we not exercising enough? Is it lots of things? It's a combination of all of that. And I think what we definitely have to do is stop pointing the finger of blame. We've got to stop blaming individuals. It's the environment that we're in. And if we're really going to halt this obesity epidemic, then we've got to change the environment. So the truth is that we live in, in, in research circles. We, we call it an obesogenic environment, which means that we, you know, lots of us live in cities where it is hard to walk. You, you know, we often work further away from our home than we ever did in the past. So you can't necessarily walk to work. So people get in their cars, they drive to work, they park, they sit at a desk. Um, and then the food system has completely changed. So instead of, you know, we've gone through these phases of blaming fat, blaming carbohydrate, going back to blaming fat, going back to blaming carbohydrate, blaming sugar, blaming gluten. And the truth is it's ultra processed food that's the problem. Mm -hmm. well, you know, if you just think about what you eat across the course of the week, how many times are you actually eating a meal that's made from the whole ingredients that are the way they were grown in nature? And, and you start realizing how many times you've opened up a packet and that packet has got a bunch of ingredients that have already been highly processed. That's what we're talking about with ultra processed foods. And it's those ultra processed foods that give us refined carb, too much added sugar, the wrong kinds of fat. They're very palatable and moorish. So they make you, I mean, they're, they're actually, lots of these snack foods in particular are scientifically designed. They're clever food scientists who sit in labs and work out the correct kind of ratio of fat, salt, and sugar with the right crunch factor or whatever, or, or chewy factor, depending what the food is, that makes us want to eat them more. You know, you remember that advert for um for a, a particular brand of, of potato chips. <laughs> and it's, you know, once you pop, you can't stop. That was yes. actually their advert. And they're designed exactly to do that. And anyone who, you'll know what the brand I'm talking about, you know that once you start on, on, on something like those crunchy, salty potato chips, it's really hard to stop at the little handful. Oh, you're um, right. It's, it's that kind of salt and packet. sweet thing that goes together, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think what it is, is your brain, again, this is an evolutionary thing. Your brain is hardwired to want energy. So it really likes a lot of fat because you don't get a lot of fat very naturally in, in most foods in nature. And then it really wants salts, you know, and salt has never been as, as, as widely ubiquitous in foods as it is now. Natural foods 
bar seafoods are are really low in salt. So you know we've got we've got drivers in the brain for sugar, fat, and salt, and and you know these these foods are really sort of playing on that system. It could be Sunday football or Monday piano lessons. Whatever a child wants to learn after school hours, Scots Care has grants to help cover costs. Parents can't always find the funds for those extracurricular pursuits, but there's a good chance Scots Care can. But I suppose one of the issues that we have as a society is that we are in the middle of a cost of living crisis and it's cheaper to buy processed food. And if you don't, if you don't have much money, you can go to the supermarket and, and buy what I would term rubbish food for not too much money. So I just, I wonder if, if you are strapped for cash, is there kind of like cornerstones or fundamentals that you should definitely try and, and keep in your diet? Is it just about trying to get whole vegetables into the diet? Yeah, look, it's about having more whole foods and trying to cut out those ultra processed foods. But you raise a really important point. You know, health is not equitable. And, and it's a, and it's we see that. So across the socioeconomic groups, we see that people who are in those lower socioeconomic groups have much higher rates of overweight and obesity. We see that their diets are poorer. And, and you know, and that's why I feel it's really important that we stop doing this, pointing the finger of blame. And that's not to say, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, most of us have an issue you know there's a very small percentage of people who never have to worry about their weight most of us are are in the, because this is just a blip as i say in the evolutionary time scale so you know we're, we're hardwired to to be you know seeking out food storing food resting when we can and it's really hard to sort of break out of that but we've got it so we've got to try and and step back instead of it being about personal choice about foods this is where we need governments to step in and we see some things that have been successful i mean in mexico they've had some success with you know, a sugar tax that's then reduced the, the sugar, sweet and soft drinks that are consumed, which was a major problem in, in countries like Mexico. And um, so we see these kind of changes that can help, but we've got to do more to make it more affordable, you know, to, to have fresh fruits and vegetables, to have whole grains rather than refined, highly processed packaged grain foods, you know, to make it frustrates the life out of me when I go to the supermarket and I see you know, white sliced bread on special for here in Australia will be for less than a dollar. But right. if you want the whole meal or the whole grain, it costs more than double that amount. And for a really beautiful whole grain sourdough, it can be, you know, eight, nine, ten dollars. So, you know, that's that's just crazy when we start sort of seeing that that kind of thing. But having said all that, what I will say is often it's not one of the best segments I, I think I've ever done on television over here. I, I occasionally still do segments on uh, our Today Show, which is our breakfast TV show, which I've done for over 16 years. But a few years ago, um, I got a call to, to come and do a segment on, can you show us how to make popular fast foods at home, Joe? And I said, yeah, no problem. I said, do you want me to show that it's cheaper as well? And they said, oh, can you do that? And I said, yeah, sure. And then I hung up and I thought, oh God, I hope I can. <laughs> <laughs> And then hand on heart, Marcus, I, I put together my menu I, I, and I just calculated the cost of ingredients and without me manipulating anything. And yes, I used, you know, the standard chicken breast, not the organic, whatever fancy yeah. one, but I just used standard fare and all of them came out from pizza. You know, there was a kebab, there was a, a you know, a burger, there was fish and chips and so on. And all of them came out cheaper than the bod. So I do sometimes wonder, are we taught that these foods are cheaper? You know, if you go and get fried chicken takeout from one of those chains to feed the whole family, I can I can bet you a hundred bucks that, you know, I could make a family meal for less money than you've just spent on that takeout. Oh, so I think easily, sometimes Joe. you fed it. 
but yeah, that would cost you sixteen to twenty quid here to buy a, a family bucket yeah. of of chicken. Yeah, and you could you know you could buy a couple of whole chickens and make it yourself at home. Um, so I think you know we've just got to be careful that we're we're not losing the skills that we need. You know, the skills of our mothers and grandmothers that helps to do a family budget. You know, the UK was never healthier than during the war when everyone was on rations. Um, and they had to learn to budget and, and make food from from the food that was available. Yes, interesting that, isn't it? Yes. Now, you've written a lot about uh, the gut mind connection, and this is something that particularly interested me. This is how actually you came to my attention because I was, I am really interested in it. Could you explain what the the, the gut brain connection is? Yeah, so this comes back to the gut microbiome is involved, and some people call the the gut your kind of second brain. It doesn't have a consciousness, of course, but it's got its own nervous system. And what we now know is, well, there's the vagus nerve that that um, connects the gut to the brain, um, but there's also metabolites that happen from digestion or from the fermentation processes that go on with the gut microbiome that then get up into the bloodstream and they can also make their way to the brain. So there's various ways of communication. So, but mostly we're talking about that vagus nerve and it's kind of like a, think of it like a, a, a motorway between your brain and your gut. And there's more uh, there's more lanes going from the gut towards the brain than there is from the brain coming back. So there's about eight coming up to the brain and there's probably about two coming back. So there's always this communication between the gut and the brain. And what's what's been so extraordinary about the research and it's now, you know, the the field has literally exploded over the last um, decade or so with thousands of papers coming out um, all the time on, on these kind of links and why it might be important. We even understand now that what's going on in your gut, the metabolites that are produced, the particular microbes that are there are getting communications to your brain that then influence your food choice, that influence you know, what sorts of nutrients that you're seeking out, influence your appetite. Um, they, they, inf- they go to the liver and influence your glucose metabolism, your cholesterol metabolism. So it's, it's just extraordinary starting to understand your immune system is, is very much centered in, in the gut and, and is heavily influenced by the way that you're eating. So, you know, during COVID, you know, we started to see research studies coming out on, on your nutritional status actually influences um, whether or not you'll, you'll catch COVID, but particularly how sick you'll get when you get COVID. And some of that is being related back to the gut microbiome. So it's really quite extraordinary. You've got a lower risk of respiratory infections like COVID if you're eating in the right way um, and, and you've got a really good, strong immune system. So these things are actually, they're so important. And then relating back to mental health, you know, we're now seeing these fantastic results from studies looking at risk of depression, management of depression and, and other um, mood disorders that are all relating back to what's going on in your gut. Is there anywhere that is doing this well? Because I was thinking, of, as you were talking there, I was thinking when I grew up in Scotland, you know, parents did their best, but <clears throat> I grew up in a very poor area. And what what was fed to the kids wasn't particularly healthy. And I know it's changed a lot nowadays, but is, is there anywhere in the world that you have seen on your travels or within your research that does the the gut brain connection and gets it and and eats so that they do have a better mental health yeah well look i I mean i think what's really extraordinary is is i love traveling so i've traveled to to many places in the world i've actually just my husband and i went to south america over christmas for five weeks um and you know when you go to almost any country in the world including scotland i often get ribbed over um i'm a nutrition scientist coming from scotland because people around the world think Scottish diets are not healthy. You know, we're we're a bit too famous for the deep fried Mars bar that didn't come in until <laughs> I was an adult, by the way. I didn't grow up with that. And I always remind people when I grew up in Scotland, 
Uh, I mean, we lived in the country, so we had, and my mum had a veggie patch. And I mean, we we literally, we didn't have fast food. There was a fish and chip shop in the local town and we'd occasionally have fish and chips, but the rest of the time it was, it was foods made, you know, from scratch. So, you know, perhaps not as healthy as a Mediterranean style diet, but you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't too bad. And, and actually when you go to any country in the world, the traditional diet using their whole foods is almost always healthy. You know, so in Scotland, we've got venison and fantastic seafood and we've got oats and barley and root veggies and, and the humble potato. Potatoes are a pretty extraordinary food. It's only what we do to potatoes that make them unhealthy. So, you know, when you look at these traditional diets, they're, they're really, really healthy. There are some standouts. You know, you might have heard of the blue zones. Um, the blue yeah. zones are, are identified area. Originally, there was only five. It's been expanded to a few more now. Um, but this is a big research project that identified the areas in the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. So it's places like a couple of them are in the Mediterranean. There's one of the Greek islands, Korea. Um, and Sardinia in Italy, and then we've got Okinawa in, in Japan. Um, and anyway, these, these areas have been identified as being these are where, and then the you know, research teams go in and study their lifestyles and their diet and try to identify what is it that makes, makes these people live long, healthy lives. And so diet is a huge part of it. And in all of these areas, there's, there's commonalities, but the diets can also be quite different. Um, but they eat lots of whole foods, essentially, is they eat good fats, the, the Japanese tend to have a lower fat diet, but they are having loads of plant foods. But the other thing is the way that they eat in these places, you know, they eat together, they take time out and prioritize meals. I think that's something that we've made a, a, a big error with is that we've lost our social connections around food. Food's become something, you know, we grab it on the run and you eat in the car, you eat your sandwich at your desk at lunchtime. Whereas in a lot of these, in uh, these blue zone areas and in, in a lot of areas still that have more traditional um, uh, uh, ways of eating, they actually take time out of their day to not sit and eat at the desk, but go and sit at a table or at least at the kitchen bench and take time out from the day to actually eat the meal properly. And that's really important because you tend to make a more balanced meal for starters if you're going to sit and eat with a knife and fork. But you're also then eating mindfully. You're recognizing when you're full and when you've had enough to eat. And you're, if you're eating with someone else, you're having those social connections that are really important for mental health. So I think there's, it's not just, and then of course there's the lifestyle, you know, they're, they're usually very active, you know, in Okinawa, they're great gardeners. Um, they do things like, you know, dancing is really popular right into their twilight years. So there's a whole load of lifestyle factors that, that go along with that, but there's much that we can learn um, from looking at these kinds of areas. And it's, so it's about what you eat, but it's also how you eat, when you eat um, and how you're living your life. I like that. We try to eat with the kids as much as possible because you're right. It's, then you start rather than eating in front of the telly or eating on the coffee table where you're all crouched over, you know, if we actually sit at the dining yeah. table and there's no screens and everybody puts their phone away, it's quite nice that because, you know, you do realize that you're having a meal together and it's as, as my kids get older, it's the, one of the few times I get to say, and how was your day? And we actually have a proper conversation, <laughs> which again is quite old fashioned really, isn't it? It is, but you know, especially, you know, for people listening who've got younger kids, I tell you what, by the time they're teenagers, in the car and over dinner are the only times that we really have proper conversations. It's a great time to get your teenagers talking to you. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think it's such an important part and it's and it saddens me enormously when I hear of, you know, apartments being built in cities like London that don't even have a dining table, you know, they've and they've got the kitchen consists of a microwave and, and perhaps a, a one stovetop if you're lucky. 
that just saddens me enormously and it's not going to help us um you know get better diets moving forward i think it's so important to eat with our kids and also to get them in the kitchen learning how to cook because uh, if you don't have the skills to make a food you know a meal from scratch from from real ingredients you know you're going to end up buying ultra processed food well i do you know what i was i was just about to say something to you and i was thinking was it you who actually wrote this and i just i just read it it was about don't just teach your kids how to cook fairy cakes get them actually cooking proper meals because it will stand them in good stead for later life <laughs> yeah i think you know teach them how to make an omelet teach them how to just do boiled eggs with avocado toast you know that's my kids will do that for their breakfast you know teach them the basics not teach them how to bake. I mean, yeah, of course, have some fun with baking a cake or baking cupcakes or whatever it might be. But, you know, baking can be fun. But really, they need to learn the basics of, you know, how to make a stir fry, how to how to make bolognese, to, to do a quick spaghetti bolognese, you know, how to throw together a salad, all of these things, make a salad dressing from scratch. You know, these are not difficult things to do. And, and we've got to teach them uh, those kind of basics and get them doing those basic skills before they go on to make fancier stuff. I want to talk to you about coffee and alcohol because <laughs> I, I, you know, coffee and alcohol, I was going to say play a big part in my life, but that doesn't sound very good, does it? You know, coffee plays a big part in my life. And I, I now I'm trying to move on to half calf because if I drink too much coffee, I don't sleep very well. And then uh, I wake up in the middle of the night and I eat. And I, I did want to ask you is if eating in the middle of the night is a bad thing. Yes, <laughs> it's a very okay. bad thing. Yeah, I was kind of hoping you'd say, no, it's great. You crack on, have a peanut yeah. butter sandwich. No, no, eating in the night or eating even late in the evening is is, is associated with, with weight gain, with, with um, it, you know, we're not, our body goes through these cycles. We have these, you know, buying, uh, hormones go up and down across the 24 hours of the day where our bodies are designed to be active and to consume food during the day. And then during the night, you really want to, I mean, gosh, we could we could have a whole conversation about intermittent fasting, which is very popular here in Australia. I'm sure it is in the UK now mm -hmm. too. But, you know, so some people are kind of talking about what should the fast be overnight. And look, we don't have any really clear evidence about what the fast length should be. But I always say to people, at the very least, close, kitchen should be closed after dinner and not reopened until breakfast. So you've hopefully got at least 12 hours overnight that you're giving your body a break. You need to give your digestive system a break. You're, when you're sleeping, that's when your body should be focusing on recovery, repair. You know, it's very important. Sleep is so important for organization of your memory, for your brain health, um, for repair and recovery around your body. Um, so, you know, when you shouldn't be taking food in. There's obviously still, you know, some stuff further down the, the gastrointestinal tract that can take, you know, a day or longer to get through. But the upper gastrointestinal tract should be empty. So, yeah, so nice eating is not a great idea. Going back to coffee, though, first of all, you know, people always expect me to tell them to give up coffee. But actually, there's lots of good stuff about coffee. When you look at the research, coffee is pretty extraordinary. It's rich in a bunch of, of um, plant compounds called polyphenols. that are kind of a hot research topic. And you'll get polyphenols in your extra virgin olive oil and your berries and lots of fruits and vegetables um, in some whole grains, you know, in tea and coffee as well and in cocoa. So if you get your dark chocolate or you have pure cocoa powder, that's also very high in polyphenols. It's a wide group, you know, more than 100 different polyphenol compounds. And these are really important for the gut microbiome and they seem to be really important for the brain. They tend to have anti-inflammatory actions in, in the body. So we know that people with high polyphenol diets are, are 
tend to, to be much healthier. So when we look at the research for coffee, it reduces your risk of type 2 diabetes. It seems to be really good for your brain health. Um, you know, it's got, it reduces your risk of, of, of um, certain types of cardiovascular disease. So it's, it's actually a good drink, but you've identified its biggest problem, and that is impacting your sleep. So, I mean, you saw me drinking from my big Scottish, oh, this is a Scottish cup, by the way, mm -hmm. sent to me from my mum. So I, you know, drink coffee in the morning and then switch to a cup of tea in the afternoon, perhaps, and certainly don't be drinking coffee from about three in the afternoon. But there are also some individual differences. So some people are more sensitive, they're slower metaboli um, metabolizers of caffeine. So caffeine will stay in their system for longer. So if you're someone who finds, you know, you have a coffee at lunchtime and you're still struggling to sleep at night, then you probably have to stick to only having one or two coffees earlier in the day. So for most of us, you know, actually coffee can be a good thing. And I think what where we go wrong is what we put in the coffee, you know. So if you go to especially those American style coffee shops where you get an enormous coffee that's got a huge amount of milk. And if you have a shot of, oh, I fancy a, I don't know, an almond latte. Yes. And they put in a shot of almond flavored syrup. You can be getting, you know, eight, nine teaspoonfuls of sugar into wow. that coffee and if there's cream on the top you know you're adding a whole load of calories that you really don't need so i think it's what you put in coffee how much you're drinking and then some individual genetic differences that, that can make an impact on how it influences your health and another thing that that will um knacker up your sleep patterns i suppose is is alcohol and i i read this report in and you've probably seen it as well but in canada they're now saying that we should be limiting ourselves to two alcoholic drinks a week and i i wondered if i i see this more especially with the younger generation do you think we are moving slowly towards a more sober society yeah that certainly seems to be the trend even when i watch my own kids you know as i say my eldest just turned 18 and he's not gone i'd said to my boys that they got two thousand dollars if they made it to 18 without drinking oh. <laughs> and my 18 year old did it and so i had to cough up well, it remains <laughs> to be seen whether a 16 year old can do it yeah. um, so I coughed up and now when I watch him and his friends, um, admittedly, a lot of his friends are Asian and they're not very good at metabolizing alcohol. Genetically, a lot of Asian uh, people of Asian ancestry are not very good at metabolizing. They don't have the same enzymes to break down and metabolize alcohol. So they're not big drinkers anyway. Uh, so maybe his friendship group, but I certainly noticed they're having a few drinks when they go out, but not in the same way that I suspect you and I did in the, the culture of Scotland you know, during the, the 80s and 90s, which was very much a drinking culture. So I think things are changing and there's no doubt. And look, I I, I will admit my vice. I was laughing to myself when you said coffee and alcohol because I drink, you know, probably three coffees across the morning and and I certainly have, have uh, at least one glass of wine on most nights. So I love my wine and, uh, you know, that would definitely be my vice. To, to try and I'm always trying to make, you know, make little uh, goals to myself to, to, to drink less wine. So I, you know, I appreciate uh, the difference. And I try to drink though in the Mediterranean style way. I mean, what's difficult about alcohol is there does seem to be a difference um, with the way that you drink. So I try to sort of adopt that Mediterranean style, having a glass or so with, with dinner um, is, yeah. is the way they tend to drink rather than the very Scottish or certainly when I was growing up, Scottish way of sort of binge drinking on the weekend. And I've seen that here in Australia, too. So, yes, I think the society is changing. I do worry about what they're going to. You know, I mean, I don't know what's happening with drug culture. Uh, that worries me enormously with um, being a parent. Um, but, yes, you know, things are changing. There's no doubt from a research perspective too much alcohol is harmful. But for some things like heart, I mean, this is, I think, is what's confusing about alcohol is that a drink or two a day 
tends to be good for some things like like um, the cardiovascular system. So there's a lot we don't yet understand, I think, about alcohol. But there's no doubt, you know, having more than a couple of drinks a day is very, very definitely harmful um, and increases your risk of different types of cancer and not great for your brain and so on. Um, so there's no doubt that, that most of us have to really be careful with how much we're drinking if you choose to drink. I think, yeah, I think it can easily get away from you. And I think certainly around Christmas sure. time, I, I was kind of lazy drinking because I'd got a whole lot of beer in the house. And even if I just wanted a fizzy drink or I was just thirsty, I would crack open a beer. And I re mm. I realized that, you know, be between, I don't know, start of December and the beginning of January, I'd, I'd probably gone through, I won't say a number, but too many beers. And then, so I decided that I was going to do dry January and I did it. And I was really surprised at how much better I felt because I slept better. I had more energy. I had more patience with the kids. Uh, strange things like my toilet habits changed. Um, mm. That, that made, made such a big difference to me. Um, uh, there, was, there was something else that was, that was a big thing for me. My memory got better. <laughs> no, it wasn't my memory. <laughs> got better. But it did make a big difference. Oh, aches and pains, general aches and pains. They seem to go away as well. And yeah. So I did dry January and I've, it's kind of crept back in, but only in a kind of, oh, have a glass of wine here and there. So I, I'm trying to limit yeah. it because I'm generally feeling better for it. Yeah. And look, I, I also wonder whether it does start to affect you more as you get older. You know, I certainly uh, the feedback I get from from I mean, I don't know if there is a difference between women and men, but, you know, a lot of women talk to me about particularly after menopause that they start feeling like they just can't drink in the same way. And so it naturally curbs uh, their alcohol intake. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wonder if it's, you know, also one of those things that as you get older, you just can't drink in the same way, you, you know, hangovers might affect you more and these kind of things that might reel it in. But yeah, there's look, there's no doubt if you choose to drink, then, you know, I suspect I think a, a glass or two a day, uh, you know, drinking wine with with a meal, if that suits you and it's something you enjoy, then that's fine. But certainly, certainly drinking too much. And it's, it's not a bad idea to do these kind of dry Julys or, or you know, we have fed fast is quite popular here in Australia. And the only thing I think about some of those those kind of events are one, if you use it to sort of reset your habits, to break some habits and and uh, change things long term, then that's great. But if it's just, uh, you know, I do also know those people have do, done these kind of months and then the minute it's the first of the next month, they go on a bender because it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, I'm so good. I mean, so good for a month. So yeah, so reward I urge yourself by going out and getting lashed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So do it with the right frame of mind. And, and I, you know, one of the things I've just been writing, actually, the last chapter in, in the Audible I've just recorded, which is called Heartful, What to Eat for a Healthier Heart. And my last chapter actually has nothing to do with food. It's actually about breaking habits and, and building new habits. And often it's about prioritizing. So I talk about it, you know, being uh, so food, drink, exercise, activity, sleep, stress. And I include joy and joy is part of the social connection type stuff that we talked about eating dinner with family or friends and so on. And I talk about that as being a kind of graphic equalizer. And sometimes you just have to stop and evaluate your life and go, OK, is anything really out of whack? And it might be after Christmas or after a holiday alcohol, um, but it might also be, oh, I've been getting too much fast food or I've not been getting my exercise or I've not been sleeping well or stressed to the max. All of these things and decide and prioritize and not try to change too much at one time. So, you know, I think that's where sometimes we set the bar too high. So instead of saying, OK, I'm going to limit myself to a glass of wine with a meal, you know, we go all out and we go, OK, I'm going to stop drinking alcohol. I'm going to go to the gym at six every morning and I'm going to stop yelling at the kids and I'm going to, you know, la, la, la. we list all this stuff we're going to do. And then we set the bar so high that, of course, we fall off the wagon and we can't keep it up. So I think it's about understanding how to break those habits and how to gradually 
you know, set ourselves goals and get ourselves onto the right track so that by the end of the year, we're in a healthier place than we started. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, being realistic and uh, being kind to yourself. I think we, you know, social media is hard enough on us. So we've got to be nice to our, ourselves when we can. You know, Joanna, thank you for joining me today. It's been absolutely brilliant chatting to you. And you know what? I also, uh, I, I wanted to talk ice cream with you because your family made oh. <laughs> ice cream, Mackie's ice cream, which I grew up with. It's got to be the best ice cream I've ever tasted in my life. And uh, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, do you know, Marcus, just before we finish, that's a really interesting story. So my cousins now have taken over the Mackey's farm and, and produced, they, they always make me laugh because here's me being a nutrition scientist and dietitian on the other side of the world. And I always say to them, gosh, you're, you're producing ice cream, chocolate and potato crisps. Oh, <laughs> can, we, can we get some healthier foods into the family? But anyway, it is very good ice cream, I'll, I'll, I'll admit. But, you know, that came about because my uncle, this was in the era of when I was growing up and uh, and low fat milk became the thing. And so they had all this excess cream. And so my uncle at the time, my late uncle, he's passed away now. He bought a, an ice cream maker and the recipe from an, from a retiring Italian guy. I hope if my cousins are listening, I'm getting the story right. And he started making ice cream and it was just a small little side business, really. They were a dairy farm and it's grown to today. You know, the business is, is ice cream and it's pretty fantastic to go to the, the and the farm where the where the ice cream is made is still the farm where my mom grew up and my she was one of six. So my aunts and uncles all grew up on the farm where it still is now. And now it's this it's still a dairy farm. They've still got their own cattle, too. But it's essentially this massive ice cream factory. It's fantastic. It's real ice cream, real ice cream. That's what I like about it. You know, it's not like it the is. stuff you buy in the supermarket. You go, oh, it's got a load of potatoes in it. This is the real thing. Well, absolutely. I mean, even as a nutrition scientist, I do at least like that, you know, it's cream and sugar and then fruit or, you know, whatever the, the flavorings and so on that go in. It's not artificial. So, you know, I think if you're going to have ice cream, have the real thing and really enjoy it. Jill, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Marcus. It's been a pleasure to chat. Scott's Care. Supporting Scots away from home in London 24-7.